Welcome back, everybody, to my second self and I. We have missed you. Rise and shine for true crime comedy time. I've been going crazy not being able to put one of these together for almost six weeks or however long it's been. There have been a lot of sleepless nights, doom scrolling on YouTube rabbit holes that have nothing to do with anything, but I was just gifted a two terabyte external hard drive from friend of the show, Antony. You can thank him and his cool dad for keeping this show going a little bit longer. And you know what? Even cooler, all they wanted in return was some cupcakes, which I was very happy to make. I sincerely hope everyone had a fantastic holiday season and a very happy New Year's to everyone as well. I've got a couple ideas I've been kicking around, add a little more flavor to the show. I think most of you will enjoy it. You know, a mental refresh is necessary sometimes, but I have not been completely avoidant of the show since the last episode. I'm also recording more of my own original music to put in the background, and I've been practicing writing and singing to help with overall quality and tone of voice and all that stuff that you don't really see, but if I didn't do it, you would notice it probably. I want to do more voices. What, like accents or more speaking time? Accents. Don't worry about speaking time. I'll find my way in. Alright, yeah, cool. Sure, sounds fun. I'm just about ready to jump into the story today, but first, you know what I would really like for you to do? Literally anything to help spread the show around? Go tell two friends. Tell three friends. Rate, leave a review on something, pop over to the Facebook page, drop a comment, whatever you want, wherever you can. I just really need some feedback from somebody so I can know what better to do. If you would, no problem, if not. If you're new to the show, this is the part where I tell you that I'm going to be making jokes throughout this because this is a comedy show. The victims and their families aren't the targets here, but everything else is fair game. Goofy names, crazy ideas, ironic twists. Sometimes there's just some weird shit that happens in the places we go. I'll find the funny in there somewhere. We do make jokes, but there's no room for legitimate malice on this show. I can be sort of a dick, but I have a heart of gold. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Let's do this. Hell yeah, let's do this. One of the flavor improvements for the show I mentioned is right here, by the way. I had this weird mental block whenever I came across anything that another podcast has covered. I felt like since it had been done before, it wouldn't be as good as it could be if it were a brand new story to tell. That would be like telling an artist not to paint the Eiffel Tower just because there's already a painting of it somewhere. And I'm kind of new at this, so the added flexibility will be very helpful. So I no longer give a shit if anyone else has covered something I find interesting. And, from what I can gather, most other true crime comedy podcasts have two different people as host and co-host, which means this show will be in an entirely different format anyway, so fuck it, I could use the practice. Another flavor improvement I've been working on is talking to more people. I met a really interesting dude a few weeks ago. He's got a really interesting perspective on his approach toward personal growth and relationships, which I've been working on a lot lately, and I actually convinced him to record a little spot for the episode today because I think he can provide a really interesting bit of insight to the story today. Trust me, you're going to like this guy. We're not really going all that far away from me today either. Well, you know, I say that, but... Texas is ridiculous to drive through, and we've got to go all the way up to Texarkana to talk about the Moonlight Murders. Haven't we driven through there once before? No, that's Lake Texoma on the Oklahoma border when we go to Tulsa. Oh yeah, and the Red River. 
And the part we cross is usually pretty ugly, too. I think last time it was just, like, creek banks of mud and sand. So where's Texarkana? Over by Arkansas, I guess? Yeah, Texarkana straddles the state lines between Texas and Arkansas. They are technically two independent cities, but function as one entity, I believe. Oh, that's kind of cool, but hey, listen, why do we have to go there? Can't we just stay here and eat some of these cookies? No, we're not actually going. It's like a four-hour drive away from here. We don't have enough gas for that. How are you going to get there? Again, we're not actually leaving. It's just a metaphor. How are we going to record in the car, Matt? Huh? How are we going to do that? Okay, you know what? I'm turning off your mic for a while. I've got a story to tell. Around 300 miles vaguely northeast of Houston, and roughly four and a half hours from your dear narrator, nestled in the southwest corner of Arkansas, the northeast corner of Texas, and southeastern corner of Oklahoma, lies the sun-baked tiny town of Texarkana. This is in the Arc La Tex subregion, which I've never heard that before. Certainly never hear of anybody from there. Yeah, I've never asked someone where they're from, and they're like, Arc Latex! I'm from the Arc Latex subregion of the Midwest Southern-ish quadrant of the United States. As is customary in old-timey tradition, the town started at an intersection on a railroad crossing. The Cairo and Fulton Railroads were cross-hatching their way across the country at the same time as the Texas and Pacific Railroad, and on December 8, 1873, the two companies decided that the best place for the tracks to cross would be at the border, and just like that, boom, bam, a town is born. Then, seven years later, August 10, 1880, which I'm sure was a dusty, sepia-tone-colored morning, Texarkana was incorporated in Arkansas. Wait, but not Texas? I mean, I have to assume the Texas side also incorporated, but the official town website just says Arkansas. Main Street splits the two states down the state line, with the federal courthouse sitting directly in the middle. I suppose you could call this a fun fact. This is the second most photographed federal courthouse in the country, right behind the one in D.C. Who in the fuck takes pictures of courthouses? I have no idea either. Cops, maybe? Forgetful criminals who don't remember where not to go? I don't know. Either way, that's the lamest shide so real ever. Side slow? This is going to completely devastate your brains out there, by the way. Do you know why it's called Texarkana? It's actually pronounced Texarkanaw. No, it isn't. It's called Texarkana because, and this is a really clever way to do this, it's called that because of its very specific geographical location to three different states, Texas, Arkansas, and California. California, at the time, being much further east than it is today. Strangely... Wait a minute. This is weird. Strangely, not a lot of people actually know this little factoid about the Wild West. Before California became a state in 1776, much of present-day Oklahoma was originally slated to become the Golden State until Andrew Jackson voluntold all the Native Americans to get comfortable there, and almost none of that is true. Just kidding. The other state is Louisiana, not any of those other ones. That's also why I said factoid, because it's not true, but was presented like it was. Besides that, we really don't need any more Californians over here driving up all the housing prices. Seriously, stop moving here. We're full and the market sucks. Driving into town, you'll be greeted by a welcome sign, but the motto attached to it seems to be a little underwhelming. The town motto for this place is twice as nice, which is cute. I'll give them that. Except for the entire town is only around 29 square miles, and it's on the line between two states, so 
I would like to offer a better, more accurate town motto. Welcome to Texarkana. We're barely in either. <laughs> Fucking nice. And amazingly, there's around 37,000 people here. That's not a lot of room to fit that many people in. So with all that limited luxury square mileage to go around, there better be something in town that's fun to do, right? Well, if you look at the first 25 listings on TripAdvisor, five of them are museums, there's a couple government buildings, no thanks, and almost all the other options are outside stuff. Spring Lake Park, Bringle Lake Trail, Philip McDougall Trail. Wait, what's a Bringle? Oh, that's actually old slang for a joint. Oh, I bet they used to just walk around the trail and smoke weed and look at trees and shit. Wait, really? No, I have no idea what a Bringle is. Probably just some guy's name. I'm definitely going to call it that now, though. Come blaze this Bringle down with me. It'll be Diz. So there's a lot of outsidey stuff to go do, but it wouldn't be a metaphorical road trip if we didn't grab something to eat, right? Let's go take a look at what the food scene is like. If you're new here, this is a fun segment where I find a review or two from a restaurant in town that someone left who has no business leaving a review. Why? Because I've worked in a lot of restaurants and... Good lord, some customers. I have to say, I found a few places that actually look like they might be pretty good, but we're only going to talk about one. Good food in unexpected places is always something welcome in my book. I love food. Oh, speaking of which, I have a fun project that I've been working on that I'm going to tell you about after all of this. But the place we're going to talk about right now is Barbecue Place, because you have to check out the barbecue scene in a small country town. If you go to a small town and you don't find the barbecue place, and people that live there, if they find out about it, next time you go through, they're going to blow your tires out when you drive through that town again. It's a, Barbecue is serious in small towns, guys. If you ever go there, find, the, find some brisket. You'll do, thank me later. That's where the people are going to be anyway. And I'm positive that I know the correct pronunciation for this restaurant, but based on the spelling, N-A-A-M-A-N, I refuse to pronounce it as anything else but Nah Man's Barbecue, and it looks pretty fucking dope. The building looks like it used to be an old auto garage or mechanic shop or something. There's painted brick walls with entire front ends, like half of cars coming out of the wall just because. There's lots of taxidermied animal heads on the wall and a giant bear that says, it's got a sign on it that says, Please don't pet the animals. They are dead. I like it when a place is just covered wall to wall in goofy shit. And I'm not certain what kind of sandwich this is a photo of, but it's about a soda can tall and just full of fucking meat, man. There's brisket, sausage, I think some pulled pork, some pickles, maybe some slaw on top, which belongs in the garbage instead of ruining my sandwich. There's also a piano in the middle of the dining room for some reason. But they make up for that by having a dry-aged meat locker full of ribeyes and porterhouses, so I'll forgive them. But let's see what someone else thinks of this place, shall we? Alright, this is a five-star review for Nawman's. Oh my gosh, this place was awesome. Really cool, quirky decor, great food and friendly servers and staff, portions were huge, highly recommend. I got a half meat plate with brisket and pork ribs, the meat was fall off the bone tender, the hot stuff sauce was very spicy and delicious, they do have a bar, which wasn't immediate obvious when you walk in. Okay, here's another 5 star. What an incredible find! The food was amazing and the atmosphere was perfect. 
The red-headed stepchild sandwich was a perfect combo of brisket, sausage, and pulled pork. Oh, there's that sandwich. That's what it's called? The red-headed stepchild? <laughs> awesome. The sauces were all delicious and the drinks hit the spot. We also loved the piano music and ambience. Skylar, the musician, did a fantastic job. Would definitely recommend and hope to get to go back again. I really hope that that musician calls himself Reach for the Skylar, because that's dumb as shit, and I hope... If my name was Skylar, I would call myself that as a musical act, just because it's ridiculous. So a lot of the reviews are greatly in favor of this place, but... No restaurant ever has made 100% of people happy, so here's some really confusing one-star reviews people left here. What happened to the cheesecake? It was like rubber. I'd think they order it from somewhere. Uh, okay. Sign on door downplaying COVID and the need to wear face coverings prompted us to eat elsewhere. Who cares about food if you can't enjoy it safely? What? By the way, I don't add punctuation to make these read better these are just how they write them we eat barbecue b-a-r-b-q come on all the time this one was not good i ordered chicken and brisket plate the chicken looked like it was a breast you get out of store frozen but it tastes okay brisket had a lot of fat and it had way too much salt the meat itself had no flavor mashed potatoes were dry and had no flavor the cheesy corn was good but my husband got pulled pork sandwich it was small and not bad tasting will not be back this is my favorite one this next one's from a lady named sherry she says not a place to go stay, no ice, and they can't get your room right. That's the wrong place, Sherry. I love it when they review the wrong business. That just tells me that that person that left the review was going to complain about something regardless. They didn't even bother putting it in the right place. They just wanted to bitch about something to somebody. But all of us here on My Second Self and I, you know what? We're on your side, Sherry. I can't stand it when I accidentally go to a barbecue restaurant thinking it's a hotel and then they, the audacity to not give me a room key or any ice, I just, I really hope you get that figured out. It's fucking hot in Texarkana. There are no trees unless you leave town. So if you're outside, you're just in it. So I hope you found your room. That's going to be all for the town stuff. We've got a series of violent murders to talk about for the rest of the episode. So get ready, everybody. For a period of around 10 weeks in the twin counties of Bowie in Texas and Miller in Arkansas, a series of savage attacks would terrorize the peaceful community of Texarkana. The months after World War II ended should have been a time of relaxation and joy, but from February 22nd through May 3rd, 1946, a total of eight people would be attacked and five would ultimately die from their injuries. The newspapers would soon begin to print headlines calling the attacks, The Moonlight Murders. The man that would later be called the Texarkana Phantom, or Phantom of Texarkana, has never positively been identified. While many, including those who worked closely on the case, have all but narrowed down the suspect pool to one individual, without the necessary physical evidence, they just can't say for certain, at least not from a definitive legal standpoint. The night of February 22nd was calm, cool, a slight breeze in the air. The pockmarked sky accented by a multitude of chirps and clicks against ribbons of pale light. Jimmy Hollis, a young man of about 25, is driving home from the movies with his girlfriend, Mary Jean LeRae. I've heard it pronounced Larry or LeRae, and I really hope this girl's parents didn't name her Mary Larry because that's just silly. 
I also figured out two possible movies that these two may have gone to go see, and you can see them too. They're both on YouTube right now for free, and I accidentally watched too much of both of them instead of doing this. They either saw The Spiral Staircase, which is a psychological thriller starring Dorothy McGuire and Ethel Barrymore, or, I really hope this is the case, The Bandit of Sherwood Forest, a Robin Hood-esque movie about old English dudes doing Robin Hood shit. It also stars a bunch of people with old-timey names we've never heard of, so let's just get back to story time. The young couple had just begun driving home from their date when they decided to take a little detour instead. Being 25 and 19, while also alone at night after a date, certain chemicals in the brain start to bubble up and desire takes priority over all logical function. That means they were horny. Yes, thank you, Alex. But we're going to come back to the story in just a moment. I really just want to take a moment to introduce everyone to my new friend, and because of the nature of the crimes in this story today, here seems to be the least in the way place to do just that. And I just wouldn't feel right keeping this deep well of powerful knowledge all to myself, but I promise you, I can't tell you like he can. There's just something about the way he says certain things that really jabs into you and latches on like a song with a catchy tune. So, without further ado, Tony, you want to come in here for a minute? Hey everybody, my name is Tony Norears, but you can call me Spoons. Yeah, I grew up in a little town in Wisconsin called Spooner, but I kind of went ass over tea kettle trying to figure out where to go in life. Yeah, I sort of just bounced around from place to place, just looking, you know, just feeling out what felt good, you know. Tried fishing, but I just can't be bothered by all the crowds at the boat launch, you know. <laughs> and then this one time, when I was around 22, maybe 23, I got a job on a dairy farm. I thought, you know, I like cows. I like milk. Maybe I can work with cows and do the farm stuff, but oh boy, let me tell you, that is some tough work there, buddy. And the cow talk. Oh, it's just cows all day long. And don't you ever let them catch you talking about California cows. Oh, ho, ho, that's, uh, that's not going to be a conversation. You're just not going to want to have that conversation, all right? But eh, bouncing around gave me a lot of opportunities to see the world from, you know, different angles. And, and then I found it. I found the thing that's really going to anchor it all down. I bouldered my way to the tap of the chimney, and in a flash... My old life was just a check outline on the ground. I'm tacking about rat climbing. You gotta find the route to get up that wall faster, grab the buttress, and swing yourself around to a new version of you. The version of you that you always knew was inside of you. I'm tacking about climbing the big wall of life and really grabbing hold of what makes you you, dude. Do it. Climb the rack. Do it. You'll never know if you don't try. You have to climb the rock. Tony No Years believes in you. You can do it. All right, thanks, Tony. I got to tell you guys, this guy's going to be a good friend of mine for a long time. With motivation like that, I can't afford to not have him around. That is some rock-solid advice. Let's get back to the story now and see how Jimmy and Mary Knight's is going. Around midnight on Friday, February 22, 1946, 
Jimmy Hollis, 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Luray, were on their way home from a movie date and decided to pull off on a lover's lane. Just as things were starting to get interesting, the couple is blinded by the beam of a flashlight. Jimmy turns to the stranger and notices he's wearing what appears to be a pillowcase with eye holes cut out. Jimmy pleaded with the man that he was mistaken and he must have been looking for someone else. Stranger orders them out of the car, saying, I don't want to kill you, fella. Just do what I say. The stranger orders Hollis to take his pants off and for Mary to get on the ground. When Jimmy does take his pants off, the stranger cracks Jimmy in the head twice with the pistol he was carrying. Mary thought he had been shot, the sound was so loud. She would later come to find out that that sound was Jimmy's skull fracturing from the impact. Just to give a little insight on how hard the guy hit him, it would take around 1,100 pounds of pressure to fracture a human skull. I guess if you got the angle just right on the corner of the gun handle hard enough, you could crack something, but, I mean, still, that's a lot of force. I feel like you really gotta want that one. You gotta really get in there with purpose. Mary tries to bargain with the man by showing him Jimmy's wallet to prove that it's empty but he isn't here to rob them, and Mary is struck in the head with a blunt object, probably the gun. He then orders her to get up and run, run towards the road. Mary happily obliges and sprints away from her attacker. She's still pretty woozy from being struck in the head a few moments ago, and tried to get the attention of a parked car, but to her dismay, it was empty. She can hear the footsteps gaining on her as he's shouting, Why are you running? And she yells back towards him, Because you told me to! and then he calls her a liar before catching up to her, beats her again, but also uses the gun to sexually assault her as well, and then runs away into the night. After a few minutes, Mary regains consciousness and bolts down the road for about half a mile until she comes across a farmhouse. She awakens the residents and calls the police. Meanwhile, back down the road about another half mile, Jimmy is regaining consciousness as well. Hooray! He flags down a passing motorist and also gets in contact with the authorities. About a half hour later, Sheriff Bill Presley arrives on the scene with a few other deputies. Sheriff Bill questions the pair about their attacker. Jimmy says he was a tall, tanned man, around six feet, maybe around 30 years old. While Mary agreed with the bulk of Jimmy's description, she said that it was a black man. This conflicting report made possible by the pillowcase covering that obscured any identifiable features also made the police not believe their story. They thought Jimmy and Mary knew their assailant and were just covering for him. Dude, he violated her with a gun. Who's gonna lie to cover that guy? Really? I don't know, man. Black dude wearing a white hood in the 40s? That doesn't sound very historically accurate. Hey, guys. I'm uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, I got something I want to oh, see. yeah, sure. No problem, Tony. What's up? You know, if you really want to have a gosh darn good time on a Friday, I'll tell you what you gotta do. You gotta go find a fish fry. There's something about getting a nice little piece of fish, having a beer, maybe a little slap and tickle, you know. That's what I would do, you know, back home. That, that's where you meet all the girls. That's that's where you find the one. The, maybe the one that you can take back to the farm and meet the parents, you know. That, you know what, that, that's all. You, you just made me think of that, so... I just wanted to tell you about the Friday Night Fish Fry. Alright, once again, there's Tony No Rears, everybody. Fish Fry. Gotta admit, I like the sound of that. Alright, moving right along now. 
The next few weeks would be relatively quiet. Jimmy and Mary were recovering from their injuries after a brief stay in the hospital. Mary would end up moving to Oklahoma in order to distance herself from her attacker, while Jimmy quietly went back to work as an insurance agent. Around the rest of town, however, there were no strange sounds more out of place than the usual late-night meows and shrieks of various critters and pets. Until the night of March 23rd, just a couple weeks later. Though no sound would be made here, either. The stranger came across another pair of victims on Rich Road, just south of Highway 67. They were not as fortunate as Jimmy and Mary, however, and their bodies would be discovered the morning of March 24th, 1946. A passing motorist, maybe just out for a drive in the cool morning air, instead discovers what appears to be a man slumped over his steering wheel asleep. Upon further inspection, the man behind the wheel is not asleep, he is very much dead. He is in the car on his knees, which I can't picture any position inside a car on your knees that's going to be comfortable. He's in the car on his knees between the seats, and his head is resting on his crossed hands with his pockets turned out. Richard Griffin had been shot three times, once in the back of the head, and likely robbed before that. And then whoever this poor driver is looks in the back seat, and then, holy shit, there's another dead lady back there! Polly Ann Moore had also been shot in the back of the head. It is believed that both victims were killed outside the car and placed inside afterwards. Many people believe she was also sexually assaulted, but there's no examination done to attest to that before they were buried. An errant storm from the night before had washed away all of the physical evidence except for a single 32 caliber shell casing. Keeping right along with the pace of this escalation, the stranger claims another pair of young victims another couple of weeks later on April 13th. Before he left on his journey, his mother made it very clear how much she didn't want him to go. She was extremely fearful of his safety. Paul Martin, previously from Texarkana, but as of this moment in the story living in Kilgore, Texas, is driving in from a hundred-mile road trip to the VFW in town to meet up with his maybe-girlfriend, Betty Jo Booker. She is the alto sax player for the musical talent playing that evening, the Rhythmaries. Paul was 17, Betty was 15, and both were well-liked and respected by their peers and classmates. Everything seemed to be going well enough, no car troubles making it into town, the band played a good set, and nobody got too drunk and started a fight. Well, except for the cooks in the back arguing over proper technique, but that that's not important. Yes, it was all going well, until it wasn't. When Betty Jo never came home the next morning, her parents became worried, and a search party was born. When they found Paul's body, witnesses said it almost looked like a homeless drunk guy trying to sleep it off if you were to just drive by it. I drove by a guy doing exactly that the other day. A uh, uh, drunk guy sleeping on the road, not dead. Except for he was on the feeder road. There's this random patch of concrete that looks like it used to be a driveway, but just leads to grass and then woods. And he was sleeping on that patch of concrete. Could not care less that all cars in Texas are legally required to go at least 80 miles an hour at all times, regardless of location. But we'll get, we'll talk about him later. They found Paul's body lying on his left side on the edge of North Park Road, and only when they got close to him did they realize he had been shot four times. Once in the back of the neck with the bullet exiting his face, one going through the face, one in the shoulder, and another time in the right hand. Paul was found in the wee hours of the morning, barely 6.30 a.m. Poor Betty wouldn't be found until almost six hours later, almost two miles away from where they found Paul, tucked away into the woods just a stone's throw away from Morris Lane. 
Betty was found still wearing her coat with her right hand in her coat pocket. She had also been shot, once in the head and once in the chest. Paul Martin's car that he had just driven 100 miles away from home was found about one and a half miles away from his body in Spring Lake Park. See? That's why I mentioned that earlier in the town stuff part. I usually try to tie it into the main story somehow. And Betty Jo's saxophone would be found later, not too far from where her body was discovered. By now, as I'm sure you can all imagine, the town is losing their collective shit. Random murders and violent attacks just didn't happen in town then. Sure, this is a time in our country where many altercations were settled on physical terms, but there was usually at least a reason for the violence. Somebody steals a piece of lawn equipment, somebody else stares a little bit too long and sideways at another bar patron, or the middle-aged blonde lady at the grocery store is fed up with the lack of organic produce and takes it out on the clerk. I said I wanted fresh cantaloupe, you bitch! The term serial killer wouldn't enter the American lexicon until about 30 years later, so nobody even knew what to call these attacks. And it's also about right now that Sheriff Bill decided, you know what? I just don't quite have the manpower to figure out what's going on here. I'm going to call in a little backup from the big boys in the city. And he gets in contact with the Texas Rangers to come bail them out of this pickle. El Lobo Solitario Manuel Lone Wolf Gonzalez, a square-jawed, good-looking dude with a good reputation, helped secure the Hotel Grimm as a base of operations for the investigation. Gonzalez seemed to enjoy talking to the media and making big statements. After taking over the investigation and turning up zero new leads, he told the newspaper, Of course I have my opinion as to how the murders were committed, but I don't think this is the time to be putting out theories. I might be wrong. And then to make things even better, after finding even more nothing to help with the investigation, he says, You know what? Go ahead and just strap yourself all up and down with your guns and whatnot. Hitch him on right up in your belt loops and then just go wait around outside at night and park cars. We gonna catch this bitch if it's the last thing I do! Or something to that effect. Which, of course, the townsfolk ate up. Big man from the city said we need more firepower, so, without skipping a beat, the entire town arms himself to the teeth with whatever they can find. Stores are only selling empty spots on shelves in just a matter of days following El Lobo Solitario making his statement. Can you imagine being a teenager in this town while this is happening? I didn't have the best of luck in that department when I was a teenager, and I didn't have a phantom menace stalking the streets of my neighborhood. For a while there, I thought I was doing pretty good just to be able to strike up a conversation, but it just never worked in high school for hey, me. it's me again, Tony Norears. That's not really the way to do that. Let me tell you about... Let me tell you about a little story when I was in high school, right? Alright, so it's Friday night. I'm at the fish fry. It's like four below, and I'm freezing my booper off, you know? And I see this lady. She's got a brat in one hand, and the biggest beer I ever seen in the other hand. And I knew as soon as I looked at her, I just had to talk to her. So I just whacked over, you know? We started tacking, and the subject of ranch came up, because, you know, it's just gonna come up. And then I noticed a tiny little holster in the side of her snow boots, and I said, well, what's that for? And she looked back at me, and she said, oh, that's for my ranch. And let me tell you, this girl, she had me more excited than a toll booth operator to get exact change. But what really got me interested in her 
is what she said about her faith and all the togetherness and joy that she gets to experience every single day just because she believes. That's right, I'm talking about the Lord, Jesus. Through the power of Christian positivity and dedication through rat climbing, I have found the strength to climb above the rest and really grab hold of something bigger than myself. I know that with hard work and a positive outlook, all things are passable, and that's exactly what this town needs. You don't need to arm yourself with weapons and, and guns. You don't need that stuff. All you need is the Lord, you know? With Him, anything's passable. So don't worry about phantoms and robberies. It's all totally okay. Even if you do die, the Lord will still take you to heaven. So go for it. Live your life. Reach for the tap. You can do it. Believe in yourself like you believe in the Lord. Tony Norris believes in you. Is he gone? Uh, yeah. I think so. Dude, he was not like that at karaoke that night. I swear I thought he was normal. He didn't mention rock climbing one time that night. I know, for real, man. Where the hell did that come from? I don't know if I can keep up with this guy. What if he wants to hang out later? Oh, God, you're right. Lock the door. We'll have to have a serious conversation with him about boundaries later. Oof. So the town is growing increasingly paranoid as every minute slowly ticks by with a sex maniac on the loose. At least according to some publications. And something you'll see a lot when you read about stuff like this as frequently as I do is people trying to take advantage of the chaos. One of the deputies assigned to the case ended up going all the way to Shreveport on a bad lead. He received a call from a police department there saying a man had confessed to the murders. When the officer arrived, he found not a murderer, but instead one of the local town drunks from his town in Texarkana who had bribed a reporter for a bottle of whiskey. I got into to the functional alcoholic and the ever-increasing creativity of somehow acquiring more booze. Bravo, sir. That's impressive. He convinced a reporter that you're A, a murderer, so you can get free whiskey and then also a place to sleep, and he believed it? You might be drunk, but... I don't know, that guy might not be dumb either. Then, on May 3rd, 1946, police receive a call that they really don't want to hear. A husband and wife had been shot inside their own home. 36-year-old Virgil Starks was winding down after a long day of work, reading the newspaper in his favorite sitting chair. His wife, Katie, was upstairs doing some relaxing of her own on her favorite sleeping bed. Suddenly, a sound from outside rustled Katie Starks. So she yelled down to Virgil, asking him to turn down the radio, but all she heard was breaking glass. She rushed downstairs and into the living room to find Virgil slumped over in his chair with blood everywhere. Before she could react to grab the phone and call the cops, she is shot twice in the face. One bullet knocked out multiple teeth, and the other ended up exiting behind her ear. Katie is a goddamn fighter, though, and begins slowly making her way to the bedroom to grab a pistol. Then she quickly realizes the gravity of the situation, however, and opts to leave a note for whoever would come across this scene. Whoever shot her was trying to make their way into the house now, and with zero good options left, Katie musters her strength, runs out of the house. Mind you, she just got shot in the face twice and is now running toward her sister-in-law's house. 
She pounds on the door for what seems like hours, but no one answers, so she runs next door to another neighbor's house until someone finally opens the door, and then she passes out, and then she's taken to the hospital. Police back at the house found a 22 caliber bullet casing, along with a red-handled flashlight and some bloody footprints, thanks to the help of some uniformed bloodhounds, but that was the only physical evidence they found at the scene. The footprints seemed to trail off toward Highway 67, but they disappeared at the road. Now, if you don't currently or have never lived in a small town, you might not be aware of how fast shit like this gets around. And as soon as all the residents in town hear about what just happened, there's been yet another murder, except this one is crazy different. Whoever this was shot an adult couple in their own home, not a pair of teenagers trying to do hand stuff to each other in the park. Which led many to believe that this might not be the same guy. The M.O. is completely different. Different place, different victim profile, different caliber weapon. The other ones were a 32 caliber, not a 22. If you do live in a small town, however, you know that oftentimes the inhabitants of a small town are a bit of a different flavor than those of a larger city. Big city wouldn't even hear about this, let alone give a shit. If this exact thing happened in Houston or Dallas or Birmingham, I don't know, pick your metropolis, nobody in that city not connected to the case is really going to care. Not that it isn't horrible to hear, it's just kind of like background noise because it happens a lot in big cities. Unless you have a person like Gary Ridgway or Richard Ramirez or the Zodiac or whomever, you know, serial killers who have racked up a rather large body count. Otherwise, the response to it just seems to not be taken as seriously. But also, larger cities have a lot of other shit to worry about, so let's just get back to the story now. Anyway, the good people of Texarkana took it upon themselves to heed the lone wolf's advice and armed not only themselves with anything they could grab, but also their homes. Many people in town stood up and said, Well, I'm going to weaponize my house. You step one foot in that there porch and it's kablooey. You'd have one leg in Dallas, one leg in Nashville, one arm in Tulsa, and the other arm in Chicago. And then another guy said, Oh, that's nothing. You step foot on my property and you'll get peppered up so bad by birdshot that you won't even have time to say ouch. And then a third guy, who's just sitting in the corner smoking a cigarette, pops into the conversation. He said, you two dipshits wouldn't know the first thing about home security if it walked up and bit you on the ass. Now here's what I'm gonna do. And you two just listen. Tomorrow morning, early, talking before the sun comes up, I'm gonna go around all the houses in town, grab up all the leaves and dirty twigs and sticks I can find, and then later on, I'm gonna put it all on top of my yard. And this is the real important part. Underneath all the leaves... I'm going to put something under there that will keep me safe and, more importantly, keep any intruders off my property. The other two guys leaned in real close. They're just fixated on what this man is about to tell them. What are you going to put in there? And the man looks at dipshit one and dipshit two and he grins. Takes a long drag off a new cigarette that he didn't even light. It just appeared in his hand already lit somehow. And he leans in and he says, Pots and pans tied together with string. You're going to get tangled all up in the string, and then the pots and pans will start clattering and clanging all together like making noise, and then that'll alert me inside, watching from the window, because you ain't going to sneak up on me in my house, goddammit, and then I'm going to call the police. That's my plan. 
And then Dippy 1 and 2 look back at each other, look back at the man, and they start laughing. And the other guy says, well, what's so damn funny? And they say, well, you know, it's not that it's a bad idea, it's just, it's also not a good idea. You know what I'm saying? And if you haven't figured it out by now, none of that shit happened. Most of the town did booby-trap their houses with pots and pans and began open-carrying inside of their own homes for fear of personal safety, but I'm fairly certain none of them put a bunch of landmine and shotgun-based Rube Goldberg machines in their houses. I mean, maybe, but... Probably not. May 10th had a near-miss that could have gone way worse if it didn't pan out exactly how it did. High school student C.J. Lauderdale saw a suspicious guy getting on the bus. He took it upon himself to follow the bus to see what this guy was up to, and then CJ notices in his rearview that someone's following him. Oh shit! So, he abandons his mission of tailing the bus, and is now trying to shake the vehicle following him for about three miles at high speeds. Whatever high speeds in 1946 was, I can't imagine it's over more than like 50. And then to make matters worse, not being able to get away from this guy, whoever was chasing CJ shot three of his tires out! Turns out, it was an unmarked police car who was tailing CJ because they thought he was acting suspicious. When they asked why CJ didn't stop, he said something to the effect of, I didn't know you were cops. Which, yeah, no lights, no badge. I'm probably not stopping for that either. Everyone in this town's so jittery right now. Jesus. Police questioned a shitload of people about this too. After all was said and done, I think close to around 400 different people were questioned, but only a handful of them would be worth pursuing any further. Eventually, they narrow it down to the prime suspect, a man named U.L. Swinney. Arkansas State Trooper Max Tackett noticed that with each new murder, there was also a car theft, and Swinney was a career criminal who liked to steal cars. Hmm. Initially, police thought they had a pretty open and shut case, Yule's wife, Peggy, basically admitted that he was the one that committed the murders, but would later recant most of her testimony, and Yule would always deny any involvement. Even though they both said some pretty damning stuff. When officers arrested Yule, he said, You want me for more than stealing cars? And Peggy would also prove to be a very unreliable witness, changing her stories, redacting certain statements that she'd made implicating herself or her husband, so prosecutors were unable to convince her to testify. There wasn't enough physical evidence to secure a conviction for the murders, but Ewell Swinney would spend the next three decades behind bars for car theft from 1947 to 1973, and then 20 more years later after that, he dies. And to this day, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders are still technically unsolved, but I think as far as we're all concerned, I'm pretty sure Swinney did it. And if you ever find yourself in Texarkana, just make sure you know your hotel's address so you don't end up like poor Sherry with no ice or a room to stay. How about that story today, everybody? Texarkana Moonlight Murders. There is also a movie made about these attacks called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. I didn't watch it for this. And it's played every Halloween in Texarkana for everyone to go see. I bet Halloween is a really weird day in that town. Shit, this whole place just sounds like a little bit off. Two cities that are acting as one, and they also cross state lines to do that? Texarkana, get in here. 
If you happen to live there or know anyone who does and you know about some other crazy weird shit going on in town, fucking get at me. Drop a comment on the Facebook page. Hit me up on Instagram, at FunnyBaldWaiter. Tell me on an iTunes review. Whatever you want. As for the rest of you, you can go do that stuff too, if you want. I'd love to hear from you about whatever's going on in life or if you have a story that you'd like to hear me tell. Let me know. Look, I'm here for you guys. I'm here to make you laugh. I can make myself laugh all day long. But that's not nearly as entertaining as making someone else laugh. Oh yeah, and the other project that I mentioned earlier in the episode. I made a sourdough bread starter last Sunday, and it's now fully ripened, so I get to make bread this weekend. And if I don't end up baking a frisbee, I'll make sure to put it on the Facebook page so you can all see the glorious bread. That's all the time we have for tonight, though. I apologize for being a day late with the release. I challenged myself to see just how much of this I could put together in a single day, but I just couldn't quite get it finished yesterday. Got pretty close, but I was struggling to find a better way to wrap everything up and opted to sleep on it instead of forcing out, you know, something of lower quality. Hope everybody liked that story, or at least how I told it today. If you did, go do the stuff. You know the stuff I'm talking about by now. Go. Now. Do it. Go. What are you doing? Go! Listen, if you don't go and leave a review right now, I'm going to call Tony back in here and just lock myself out of the room with the microphone on and let him go. Yeah, that's what I thought. Just kidding, everybody. Go do whatever you want and have a badass week. We'll see you next week, everybody. Stay kind. <laughs>